This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at Ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Oral arguments concluded this morning on a critical abortion case before the Supreme Court. Experts see this case as the most significant challenge to reproductive rights since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion nearly half a century ago. In just a few minutes, you'll hear from someone on the ground. Megan Jaifo, executive director of the Chicago Abortion Fund, is at a rally outside of the Supreme Court. But first, we get analysis of this historic day from Katie Watson. She's a professor of bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And Katie's reaction to the oral arguments is quite blunt. My initial reaction is just truly sadness. Roe versus Wade, the precedent that American women and people capable of pregnancy have been protected by for almost 50 years, is destined to change. As you heard in the earlier NPR analysis, it sounds like Chief Justice Roberts is looking for a line other than viability. So at minimum, as you heard, uh, we can expect a significant change. The question is whether it will be entirely overturned. And I think the true and yet unspoken question of these oral arguments is whether women are people under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we fail to understand is that, historically speaking, women's legal personhood is a recent invention. And Roe versus Wade was a key piece of jurisprudence, a key case in that development of women's legal personhood. There was talk of the fetal interest in life, and yet in Roe, uh, the court was very clear in its analysis that fetuses are not people under the Constitution. The framers couldn't possibly have been thinking that. So if you want to think about original intent and history, and yet women are people. There's no doubt about it, right? Legally, morally, and otherwise. And so do women and people capable of pregnancy get to decide whether and when to continue a pregnancy and become parents? That is the question on the table. And the idea that the United States of America would move backwards on that question leaves me with profound sadness. Any surprises? And and outrage. (laughs) Any surprises? That's a great question. I was surprised there was not more interrogation of Mississippi's proposal of a 15-week standard. There was argument about whether the viability standard is arbitrary But Mississippi offered virtually no rationale for a 15-week standard. And in fact, in the legislation itself, the justification is that abortion at 15 weeks is, quote, barbaric. They're not even pretending to have a new scientific rationale, even a false one, right? They're saying it's barbaric after 15 weeks with no additional explanation or rationale. What's barbaric is forced childbearing. 
And so that part surprised me. I think Mississippi just took a pass. The Solicitor General of Mississippi took a pass on even pretending to defend that standard. He was very clear. The question the court granted cert on certiorari, where they say, here's what we'll talk about, was whether all pre-viability bans, quote, elective abortions, violated the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And Chief Justice Roberts was very focused on that and kind of called out Mississippi, saying, you're clearly, you know, the first line of their argument is you should overturn Roe and Casey. But that's not the question we granted cert on. We want to hear about the line. And Mississippi didn't even pretend to defend that line truly. And then the advocates for the Jackson Women's Health Clinic and the Solicitor General of the United States similarly said you've got to just affirm Roe and Casey, and a core holding of them is that viability line. That viability line is something we heard quite a bit Uh of this morning, Katie, and it's a big deal. So can you explain it to us from a bioethics standpoint? Sure, sure. So in Roe, the court said women have what Roe casts as a privacy interest. The privacy doctrine was not invented in Roe versus Wade. It was developed in 1965 in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut that first established Americans have a constitutional right to use contraceptives, meaning states couldn't make contraception illegal. People forget that states banned contraception that sex had to equal pregnancy or the opportunity or openness to pregnancy. And only in 1965 did we get that right to say, no, that's my personal, my family decision, whether I want to separate sex and reproduction. So Roe just picked up on that and said, does the answer to that, the fundamental decision whether to bear or beget a child that we established in Griswold and later in 1972 in a case called Eisenstadt, Griswold was just about married people. It wasn't until 1972 that single people had a right to contraception. So in Roe, the court said, does the existence of an embryo or fetus change that analysis? And the court concluded, no, it's still about your right to bear or beget a child. The viability standard came in when the court said, okay, the state has some interest in fetal life. When does that start such that it could ban abortion? Mm -hmm. And they picked viability. And here's why they picked viability, and here's the bioethics analysis of why it was an excellent choice. We're all well aware that over time, embryos and fetuses develop until delivery. The court looked at viability and said, that is when a fetus theoretically could. And again, people sometimes have the mistake that viability equals a fetus will or would survive outside the womb. That's not true. The court said has a reasonable chance at a meaningful life. So there's both a quality and a odds situation. So roughly after 24 weeks gestation. Yeah, that's when a fetus has around a 50% or better chance of survival if it's prematurely delivered, right? right? And so that's a reasonable chance. The reason the viability standard is the best standard from a bioethical perspective is it is the only standard based on fetal development that takes into account the woman in whom the fetus lives, right? It looks at their relationship and says up to this point, it has been completely dependent on her heart, her lungs, her blood, her body supporting it entirely. Now it could live outside her. It could theoretically be independent. So it is no longer, Roe does not use this language, but essentially a part of her body. 
that it could be an, its own entity in the world. And that is a relational line that looks, based in science and medicine, looks at the relationship between the fetus and the person in whom it lives. All earlier lines exclusively look at embryonic and fetal development and pretend that it's growing in an aquarium and not a person. Explain how access to medical care and developments in technology are at play when when lawyers are arguing that viability shifts over time. Well, the Roe Court, actually, it was genius. The Roe Court didn't pick a date and say, okay, after this week, you know, women lose their constitutional right to abortion. Uh, Think of cruel and unusual punishment or, you know, all the constitutional language where we have a standard, but it is interpreted differently over time based on different historical or scientific facts. The Roe Court picked viability and this standard, a reasonable chance at a meaningful life, because it knew medicine and technology changes. Now, it doesn't change as much as some people like to pretend. So the Roe Court said today, 1973, viability occurs around 28 weeks and sometimes as early as 24 weeks, which I find that fascinating, almost 50 years ago, but based on the NICU technology of the time. NICU technology has changed and improved, and the viability standard has not changed. Uh, It doesn't need to because it moves with that technology. When do you have that reasonable chance of meaningful life has moved a little bit, so it's pretty securely around 24 weeks now. So that's the move. But as Julie Rickleman and Solicitor General Prelogger were arguing, that's not a change in facts that would require the reversal of Roe or right. the cha- a change in the viability Well, Rickleman, Rickleman says that uh, taking away access to abortion before viability will mean that women can't be equal, that yes. it will be prohibitive to economic and social progress. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Absolutely. The only thing I disagree with was when Solicitor General Prelogger said one in four women rely on this, right? Meaning one in four women of reproductive age today are expected to have an abortion over the course of their lifetime. The statistics remain the same. I'd say um, many of those other three rely on it also. They didn't happen to need it, but they knew in the back of their mind if they had a pregnancy, they felt like they absolutely couldn't sustain or carry, that they would have that option. And psychologically, what's at stake here when I say the question is, are women people? Abortion is freedom. And in bioethics, we talk about autonomy, the control over one's life course. And the decision of whether to have a child or another child is so incredibly important to the course of a a person's life. Right. And so the idea of knowing that no one can force me to become a mother against my will is a sort of freedom that allows one to move in the world saying, I'm my own person. I control my body. I control my future in this respect. And so to take that right away or to push it earlier, take it away earlier, limits that freedom. Access is a word you used that is so important, Sasha. I believe it's John Oliver who talked about theoretical rights versus practical rights. Um, You know, the idea that many states don't have Medicaid coverage for abortion care, um, yet 50% of abortion patients are below the poverty line, and another roughly 25% are in that 100 to 2%. 
Other states ban private insurance from covering it. So people have to come up with $500 more in cash. Other states, because of the limitation of where the clinics are and the restrictions on them, significant travel with that expense in childcare. And so people get pushed to later gestational ages as they try to raise the money or organize the childcare or the time off work to get that abortion. And so the tragic irony is many of those who claim that they believe later abortions later in pregnancy, say 15 to 24 weeks, are worse than abortions earlier than in pregnancy, are the ones who erect the barriers that force women to go to later gestational ages. If you wanted to push the gestational ages earlier of American abortion statistics, from a policy perspective, the absolute best strategy would be to repeal the Hyde Amendment and offer full Medicaid coverage for abortion. So the money was not the obstacle. And repeal all the regulations that require waiting periods so people have to make two trips and all these things. Mm -hmm. So people could access it, the people who need it could access it earlier. If you're worried about later abortion, you should be repealing all of those regulations. What are you gonna be keeping an eye on, Katie? Keeping an eye on, of course, this development, this decision, and how it rolls access back. I think people will be panicking. I also think the court is on the brink of making a grave historical error. And you saw, or you heard rather, all the references to Brown versus Board of Education and to precedent and reversing precedents. The observation I'll make is about the legitimacy of the court. Mm -hmm. And this is in the wake of the January 6th insurrection and just the attack on American institutions and credibility of government generally, that I want to make this larger point that in all those cases where precedents were reversed, it was to grant individuals more freedom. It was to pull back state limitations on freedom. So imagine if almost 50 years after Brown in 2004, let's say, a new conservative court said, oh, we're reconsidering Brown versus Board of Education. Separate can be equal, but we're going to have a new standard for it because we want to also, we're keeping the core holding of equality, but you can segregate, but it's here's our new standard. Would African-Americans and their allies stand still for that and say, well, it was a good run, too bad? No, the court would lose its entire legitimacy and the electoral politics would reflect that. And the court is on the brink of doing that versus Roe versus Wade. And I think it will damage its institutional credibility for Mm -hmm. decades to come. Kavanaugh was focused on this concept of neutrality, that the Constitution is neutral. It's neither pro-choice nor pro-life. Well, to be neutral and allow states to force women into childbearing is not neutrality. When women are about to be thrown to the wolves saying, well, I'll be neutral and I won't uh, give you a hand up, that's not neutrality, that's allowing that harm. And historically, it will harm the court for years to come. There's so much to consider here. That's Katie Watson, a professor of bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Thanks for your time, Katie. My pleasure, Sasha. Thank you for considering this. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. That's Megan Jaifo, executive director of the Chicago Abortion Fund. Megan's joining us from a rally happening right now outside of the Supreme Court. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for making the time to join us, Megan. Tell us what it's like right now on the ground in D.C. 
Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, some lawyers uh, just came out of the Supreme Court just a bit ago, and there were a lot of cheers to support them um, as they exited. There's a lot of kind of chaotic energy happening here. There uh, have been a lot of incredible speakers. We just heard from Cori Bush, who was amazing, incredible, fellow Midwesterner. So it's an interesting place to be today. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the chaotic energy. Tell us a bit more about that mood you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, to be frank, um, the anti-abortion folks are out in full force. There's just a lot of them. I'm kind of off to the side, tried to find a quiet place, but I'm pretty surrounded. Um, There are smaller numbers on the side that supports abortion access, that affirms abortion and bodily autonomy. We are a smaller group today, and that's not something I expected when I came out. Well, why was it important for you to come out and, and be there in Washington? You know, the court's decisions have real impacts on the lives of people seeking abortions. Um, And I'm here as a mom who's had abortions, as an abortion funder, who talks to people every single day who need abortions. And access to abortion is already incredibly difficult in this country. And the idea that over half of the country could lose that really soon uh, is really scary. And so myself and a bunch of the staff at the Chicago Abortion Fund wanted to come down and, and make sure that we're here representing our callers. Yeah. Well, if you had to sort of guesstimate when you look at folks on both sides on the ground there with you, how many people would you say are there roughly? Oh, I'm so bad at that. <laughs> maybe a, a couple thousand. Maybe. Oh, really? Okay. So that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what what else are you hearing as far as discussions outside uh, the courts? Well, Cori Bush came out, like I mentioned, and one of the things she said that when she was on the ground in Ferguson, a common chant that folks who, you know, go out and protest in the streets is whose streets, our streets. And she said, whose courts? And these are our courts. And this court belongs to us. And we know that polling in this country, um, a very recent poll shows that 62% of Americans say the Supreme Court should leave the decision, should leave Roe as it is compared with 31% who want to revisit it. So though these people may outnumber us on the ground here in D.C. right now, they do not outnumber us around the country. And it's really time for people who this is important for have conversations in their communities about abortion, have conversations about what's happening at the Supreme Court. Um, It's really critical that we change the narrative, the public narrative, um, because we are the majority. What is next for you? When when are you heading back to Chicago? And what's next for the uh, Chicago Abortion Fund? Yeah, I'm heading back tonight. I'm excited to be back in Chicago. And CAF right now is really scaling up and building up our infrastructure. We have heard in the last um, 48 hours from over 60 people seeking abortions in the Midwest. We are already helping those who need access to care. And we need to continue to do this because Illinois is going to be a critical space for people um, seeking abortion care. And what's also up next to me is donating to abortion funds in Mississippi and people who are on the ground working on abortion access in Mississippi. We believe Mississippians are capable of making the decisions that are best for themselves and their families. And we don't need government interference in our reproductive lives, period. That was Megan Jaifo, executive director of the Chicago Abortion Fund. Megan, stay safe and, and thanks for joining us. Well, that's it for today's Reset. Many decisions the Supreme Court will hand down in the months to come may significantly change life as we know it here in America. So you want to subscribe to this podcast for dynamic conversations like these on the issues that affect your life. And please give us a rating. It helps curious people like you find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. And we'll meet again tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.